Welcome back to the fundmonitors.com manager insight series. Today I'm joined by Rob Hay, who is the head of distribution and head of investor relations at Collins Street Value Fund. Rob, well, thanks for joining me today. Hello, Damon. Thanks for having me along. Rob, um, I think uh, the name says it all in the Collins Street Value Fund, and I want to investigate a little bit about um, uh, what, in particular, what the mandate that you've operated in for you know, since inception of the fund, and and how that potentially has added value over the last couple of uh, last couple of years. Uh, the performance uh, for the fund has been um, uh, in excess of the index performance, and I guess I want to get a feel for how does your mandate for investment add value for investors in that sort of situation? Damon, the starting point for us within the Collins Street Value Fund is to primarily focus on capital preservation. And from there, look to build superior investment outcomes for our clients over the medium to long term. And so for us, we're not looking for relative value or not seeking to beat the market by a little bit here and there. We're seeking out those hidden gems on the ASX, which can truly reward investors with a sharp re-rating or consistent long-term compounding effects over time. And so for that reason, we focus on understanding a company deeply and very much focusing on avoiding the losers. And I think this is something that's borne true for us over time in that our downside capture ratio since we started back in 2016 is around the 30%, uh, possibly even less mark. And so for that reason, capital preservation shines through and we do tend to perform and have delivered most of our outperformance in times where the market's actually gone backwards. Now, in terms of how we practically bring that to life, within our fund, we have the freedom to invest wherever we find value on the ASX. We have the ability to hold cash within the fund. And we also have the freedom to participate in what we would call special situation investment opportunities. And this could include where we see a takeover arbitrage playing out in the market. It could be where there are off-market buybacks or the opportunities to work with management or other shareholders to lobby management for special dividends uh, and releasing cash within the company effectively over time. And more frequently for us, it's been a case of investing in what we know as convertible notes. And this is something, Damon, many of your listeners might be familiar with in that they have been available in a listed format on the ASX for quite some time. As an institutional investor, we have the opportunity to negotiate, transact and execute our own over-the-counter convertible notes directly with companies. And this has been something we've been able to add significant value to our clients through. Now, granted, they don't always... Uh, have the same magnitude, but we've seen these even add up to 100% return over a six-month period based on an individual convertible note where there's been a sharp re-rating of the stock and we've been able to convert back into shares well in the money. So uh, let's unpack that a little bit, Rob. Um, the use of convertible notes is probably a mystery to some and, and probably well known to others. How do you implement that in a portfolio like yours? And I, I, I guess... What are you doing in the way that you're, you're constructing your portfolio to add this? Is this something where you're looking to, uh, it's a business you want to get into and this is your way of getting into it, or is this uh, a pure investment play um, uh, on, uh, in, its own, in its own right? What this is about, Damon, is bringing an asymmetric risk-return profile into the equation for our investors. And so we often like to think of a convertible note as being like a lottery ticket with a coupon. 
Throughout the life of the convertible note, we will be paid interest either as cash or as shares. And if at the end of term, the shares or the share price is worth more than it is than when we initially invested or more above the conversion price, then certainly we're able to participate in that and receive a significant upside for our investors. That being said, if the shares don't perform the way that we anticipate, then we have the ability, depending on the structure of the note, to either reclaim our money back into the fund, what we originally effectively lent, or alternatively to sell our position back into the market on favourable terms. And so these are something which do pop up from time to time. I wouldn't want to suggest that the Collins Street Value Fund is all about convertible notes. Certainly, direct equity investment on the ASX is the core part of our business. But from time to time throughout the year, we do have the opportunity to participate in these, either where companies approach us or where we approach a company based on our relationships, our understanding of the strategy and their balance sheet and what might, what might make sense for them. Now, to your question around how we do this in a portfolio, certainly in a perfect world, we would have a fund full of these because the, the asymmetric return profile can be just absolutely sensational for the, right, for the right deals. That being said, we are mindful of liquidity. We're mindful of how we diversify and we're mindful of how the return of capital is staged within the fund as well. And so for that reason, we typically wouldn't look at more than 10% of the fund plus minus in these opportunities when they pop up. But certainly something which is exciting to us. And if we think about where we're sitting at the moment in terms of convertible notes, takeover arbitrage and the like, we would have about 15% of the Collins Street Value Fund currently allocated in that space. Uh, Rob, on the takeover arbitrage, uh, what are the sorts of things that you're looking for in, in those special situations, if you like? They can be quite complicated, Damon, and they don't always work out as anticipated. And I think when one is looking at a takeover arbitrage, they have to be very careful around timeframes and have a good understanding of who is looking to take over who, who else might come in, and what other strategies or options the board might consider. Uh, recommending to shareholders as an alternative. Quite often when looking at these types of transactions, it can be helpful to spend time getting to know other shareholders on the registry where you can, understanding what their views are, what their motivations might be. And so having that information, you can then get a better sense of whether or not it's likely to go through or if it actually falls over at the last minute. And naturally you have to be careful as well, Damon, that you're actually able to participate in a meaningful way. Some takeover arbitrages or takeover situations at the top end of the market might see a lot of liquidity and availability to get set, but it might also mean the window of opportunity or the size of the opportunity which you're taking advantage of might be less because it could be more efficiently priced. Flip side, of course, is at the lower end, the smaller end of the market, you might find there's a greater divergence of opinion and spread that you can capitalise on but if you can't get set and you can't get enough of the stock that you want in order to make it impactful in your portfolio, then perhaps it's not the right opportunity for you either. Um, in that situation, uh, is this something that your existing process uncovers or is, is it more something that um, you're actively searching for uh, when it comes to some of the merger arbitrage opportunities? Damon, we spend a lot of time understanding all ASX-sensitive announcements that are released and spending a lot of time looking for companies that have been re-rated by the market, either up or down. And so as a natural outworking of that, these opportunities do come onto our radar. 
where we can see that opportunity, we'll then dig a little bit deeper and see if it's one where we should be spending our time and efforts before making that high conviction call. Alongside that though, for companies that we have had a long-standing relationship with, where we've invested with over time, then part of our process of being active holders of a stock is to engage with company and on occasion, and I'm not saying this would be in every instance, but on occasion to work with management and to outline possible strategies for them to consider than how they might be appreciated by the marketplace. That's something we could do in tandem with other shareholders or individually, uh, but certainly where there's a message to be shared and where we think we can add value, we will. Um, so how are you currently positioned, uh, Rob? What are the sorts of things you're looking at for 2022 uh, as an investment manager and, and what are you seeing as some of the potential opportunities? Certainly in a low interest rate environment, Damon, even if we do see interest rates pick up a little bit, they'll still be incredibly low. We're finding absolute value very hard to come across. And within the Collins Street Value Fund, we normally have eight to 20 shares. That's the level of conviction that we have. And we do have the freedom to hold cash. At the moment, we're sitting on about 8% cash, which is at the lower end of where we've historically been. I think the average over time has been around the 15% mark. But we have been able to uncover some wonderful opportunities in unloved sectors. Uh, more recently, energy has been quite a topical one, and we've taken a position in Beach not long ago, and that's one which is trading at a very large discount relative to other peers. But operationally, um, and certainly in terms of its recent share price performance, has been quite a pleasing investment for us. Alongside that, there are some great long-term compounding opportunities in the like of RPM Automotive Group, National Tire and Wheel continues to be a core position for us. And also stocks like Boom Logistics, again, are ones that we see having great opportunity coming through into 2022. Do you think um, some of these uh, some of these unloved sectors are um, uh, potentially going to um, be the target of a broader part of the market or do you think they're largely unlooked at still? Um, well, look, stepping back from some of the examples that we just discussed, but if we think conceptually about what's been happening both domestically and abroad, severely unloved sectors, particularly if you're looking at, say, oil and gas for argument's sake, as one which is ripe for M&A type activity, and we've seen some corporate activity here in Australia at the top end of town between the likes of Woodside and BHP. And where particular sectors are on the nose for one reason or another, and they are starved of investor capital, then the natural consequence for them is to work between themselves to see how they can generate scale and efficiency and be more relevant in the marketplace. So absolutely, there's a lot of opportunity and prospect for that, I would expect as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting 2022. Uh, there's been a lot of capital in the market so uh, uh, for this year uh, and it'll be remain to be seen you know, what uh, investors do. Uh, Rob, as always, thank you for your time today and much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Damon. All the best. Bye.